0: Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics, coming up. The Prime Minister says the government will work with industry and communities to minimize the impact of the coronavirus.
1: We're continuing to work extremely hard to uh, to counter the impacts on our economy that the coronavirus will be bringing. Uh, for example, in tourism, for example, in, in travel, for example, on, on, uh, on supply chains disrupted and coming from China.
0: A cabinet committee is put together with a focus on the response to the outbreak and The economic fallout.
1: We are very mindful of the fact that an economic impact is certainly being felt in the global economy and is beginning to be felt in Canada.
0: And the latest poll puts Peter McKay ahead in the Conservative leadership race. McKay's
2: at 38%. He needs to get to 50% plus one. And 47% are undecided, so he only needs 12% of the, the, the undecided.
0: It's Thursday, March the 5th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. We're joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. Good morning, John. morning, Mark. The government has put together a cabinet committee to focus on the coronavirus, and Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland at a news conference last night talked about a Goldilocks response, not too hot, not too cold. Do you think so far the government has struck the right balance in terms of how to respond to this threat?
2: I think it's far too early to tell. I mean, we're, we're what, 33 cases in? It's just <clears throat> it's just too early to say whether they're, they've got it right or wrong. I mean, I think that the idea that a, a cabinet committee being struck uh, is going to be the panacea to, to any ills is, is uh, somewhat far-fetched. It rarely is. Um, I think on the health front, you know, this is really a provincial matter. I mean, it's, it's a question of whether the hospital's can respond to the number of cases that are are brought to them. And, uh, you know, I know that it was said yesterday that there are very few people who've been hospitalised so far, but that's out of 33 cases. I saw a figure of a hospitalisation rate of 15% elsewhere in the world. I don't think there's a health service anywhere in the world that could cope with a 15% hospitalisation rate. So, you know, it remains to be seen... How widespread the, the illness becomes and how many of those people are hospitalized as to whether governments uh, do well or badly. Right. I think perhaps more interesting is the fact that um, this cabinet committee has been struck to also talk about the economic implications. And there, obviously, the government has got far more leeway to have an impact, the federal government at least.
0: Yeah. Um, and let's talk know, about we, the economic implications. Uh, how serious do you think this is? We we saw of course the Bank of Canada governor yesterday uh follow the American uh, Federal Bank in lowering interest rates. Um uh, do you think it is going to have a serious impact economically?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think there's no doubt about that. The um the regardless of whether <clears throat> there are widespread hospitalizations and many deaths, the impact is going to be felt because the, the the fear is there. People are going to stay away from, from work. I mean, it's from the federal government's point of view, we don't know when the budget's going to be yet. Uh, I think I'm sure that they're they're thinking twice about uh, having it before the end of the fiscal year, before the first of April, because that would seem very early, and you would you really wouldn't know what you were dealing with even then. You know, this is a this is potentially as a threat to the economy as 2008-2009 Great Recession. It's a different type of crisis in that that was obviously a crisis of demand. This is really a crisis of supply. I mean, what we're seeing is that supply chains around the world are grinding to a halt, which is going to mean, I think, shortages. You know, the last time we saw a supply-side crisis was the 1970s oil crisis. And most of the recessions since then have been on the demand side. Now, this is going to be very tricky for governments to respond to. You know, the traditional medicine is tax cuts, uh, interest rate reductions and infrastructure spending. It's not clear that that is going to unglue the supply side problems. You know, companies like Apple that do all their manufacturing in China or the bulk of it. And... Those factories have just not been operational for for quite a while. I think they're starting to see some recovery now. But there was a graph on the weekend, which was the Chinese Purchasing Manager's Index. It sounds very dull, but it shows that it's the kind of leading indicator for economic activity in China. And it fell off a cliff in in February. You know, there's, there's no way that Canada escapes the ramifications of that.
0: And what are the ramifications in Canada, particularly, and I know you wrote about this recently, given that we have been running budget deficits since uh, the, the current government got elected in 2015, and that there hasn't really been a plan to bring the books back into balance, is that something that this government will come to regret now?
2: Well, I think they will. I mean, there was a comment yesterday in the Guardian newspaper in the UK by... Kenneth Rogoff, who was the Professor of Economics at Harvard, and he was one of the most prominent commentators on the Great Recession uh, ten years ago. Uh, he said that governments are going to have to start to incurring massive deficit spending to shore up their health services and their economies. He said, the point of saving for a rainy day is when it ra- it's to spend when it rains. Preparing for pandemics, wars, climate crisis and other out-of-the-box events is precisely why open-ended deficit spending during booms is dangerous. Now he was clearly thinking about Donald Trump's America, where the the deficits forecast to rise to about five percent of GDP this year in Canada, that number is just about one one point two percent. but you know we have been seeing program spending creeping up uh, year on year the debt to GDP ratio, which was meant to fall is is now at thirty one percent you know we're nowhere near where we were in two thousand and eight nine where you know the equivalent figures were. 35 percent for debt to GDP, and 3.5 of percent of GDP was in deficit. We're certainly nowhere near where we were in '95, '96, where you know the Wall Street Journal was talking about bankrupt Canada and debt levels were about 68 percent of the economy. But um, you know, we didn't need to be. We we didn't need to be at 1.2 percent. We could have been much lower, and that would have given. Bill Morneau, much more room for manoeuvre now that he really needs to have room for manoeuvre. I think the one saving grace is that interest rates are so low that he does have flexibility to respond without worsening economic conditions and plunging the country toward bankruptcy. You know, 95, 37 cents of every dollar the federal government spent went
0: on interest payments, and that number is about 7, 7 cents today. Right. Is there anything else in terms of the economic fallout from the coronavirus that the government can be doing right now? Is uh, is there anything beyond um, what you've already described that is within the government's domain?
2: Well, I, you know, as I mentioned, I think the, the, the sharp declines in production in China and, and elsewhere where workers are staying home are going li- to likely lead to uh, supply bottlenecks and shortages. Yeah. And the, the the end result of that is inflation. If you've got uh, if, it, if it lasts long enough, it's not clear to me what the, the government can particularly do to to um, to unglue that that logjam. Beyond, I think keeping credit flowing and, and making sure that businesses that are somehow um, disadvantaged or, or they you know they obviously need some kind of bridging finance the government might have a role there to keep businesses in business while this whole thing works its way out. Because, I mean, it it, it will work its way out in time, and it might just require some uh, some government help and some, I guess, some help from the central bank as yeah. well, even more help, to keep things uh, afloat in the meantime.
0: All right, let's turn to the conservative leadership race. There was a poll out yesterday that showed Peter McKay as the front runner, the clear front runner, with a Pretty significant lead on Aaron O'Toole, who was in second place, uh, but still nowhere near fifty percent, and, the, and the, a greater number of people were undecided than were supporting Peter McKay or any other candidate. So, what do you make of that? Is is uh, is Peter McKay running away with this, or is there still a lot to be determined?
2: Uh, well, all of the above, uh, Mark. I think. <laughs> um, uh, you know, the crucial numbers here, and these were, they were. They, I think they polled the general population, which is pretty useless as an indicator. Right. But they also polled people who said they would vote Conservative. And of those people, 38% said they would vote for McKay, I think 9% for Erin O'Toole, and 47% were undecided. Um, you know, so that really leaves the rest of the field fighting for 5 or 6%. So I think you can safely, if this poll is to be relied upon, and it was it was leisure. I think it's probably a reliable poll. Um, then you can discount everybody else in the field and it's a two horse race between McKay and, and O'Toole. And McKay's at thirty eight percent, he needs to get to fifty percent plus one. Um and forty seven percent are undecided, so he only needs twelve percent of the, the the undecided, you know, so you really only need you know one in four. Yeah. Of those people to come to you. So if you if you were a betting person, you got to bet on McKay. Now, is it possible that that something happens, some news comes out, McKay does something, it's so egregious that uh, his support collapses and everybody goes to O'Toole? Yes, it's possible. I mean, I hear rumours all the time that something like that is going to happen. So, yes, it's possible that McKay could lose this, but it's uh, it's the race does not always go to the to the swiftest, but that's the way to bet. And right now, McKay looks like he's the fastest.
0: We will see what happens. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Have a great day. Thanks, Mark. That's John Iverson of the National Post.
1: It is really important that we settle this issue of blockades in a peaceful manner, in a way that will be lasting. Uh, we do not want to see these problems continuing to, uh, to jump up uh, every few months in the coming years.
0: Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. At Policy Options, Kevin Quigley considers the responses to two fundamentally different crises in Canada. Quigley writes, The juxtaposition of the coronavirus and the blockades underscores that crises are not all the same. The coronavirus can be classified as an emerging risk. The way forward requires learning and transparency. The government's challenge with the Wet'suwet'en is an ambiguous risk. Perspective is crucial. Generic references to crisis and risk management are superficial and not particularly helpful for those in a position of responsibility. At cbc.ca, Taylor C. Noakes makes the case for ending corporate welfare for Canada's fossil fuel industry. Noakes writes, Our fossil fuel industry has become so politicized that subsidies are being demanded by companies as the cost of doing business. Rather than pouring money down the hole of the fossil fuel sector, it could be used to retrain unemployed oil workers in regions adversely affected by over-reliance on non-renewable resource extraction. Government intervention is necessary to quickly build a clean energy production and distribution infrastructure sufficiently large enough to get all of Canada off fossil fuels. In the Globe and Mail, Natalie Pawn argues the Tories need a leader with vision, or they risk losing young Conservatives. Pond writes, The party again faces an existential debate about its post stephen Harper identity. Andrew Scheer tried to forge one, but he failed to win an election that was his to lose. And as was the case in 2017, the Conservatives will vote in a leadership contest in which some of the more bigoted tenets of social conservatism are part of the discourse. It's forced me to wonder whether the party might be more concerned about maintaining its aging base than losing a conservative, university-educated, millennial, professional, and visible minority like me. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. Parliament may not be sitting this week, but there's an event on Parliament Hill this morning which never fails to draw a lot of attention. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more on the annual Teddy Awards.
1: Mark, at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, in the West Block press conference room, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation will be awarding its 22nd annual Teddy Awards for outrageous waste by public office holders. This annual event is done with much fun, but it also makes a serious point about what the Federation considers to be particularly egregious cases of public misuse or abuse of taxpayers' funds. I won't give away the actual cases for which the people have been nominated, but suffice it to say that in the federal category for the best federal teddy, the winner is the Prime Minister. You'll have to watch the ceremony to find out what he's being nominated for. The provincial teddy will be awarded to the British Columbia Clerk of the House and Sergeant at Arms at the BC Legislature. The Municipal Teddy will go out to the City of Vancouver Parks Board. A Lifetime Achievement Award this year will be given by the Taxpayers Federation to the former Governor-General Adrian Clarkson. And as I say, if you want to hear the rationale and the reasons for the targeting and the pillaring of these public figures, well, that will all be explained at 11 a.m. on Parliament Hill or on the Canadian Taxpayers Federation website.
0: Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will visit a Boys and Girls Club in Scarborough, Ontario. This evening, he'll speak to supporters for an open liberal fundraising event in Maple, Ontario. Transport Minister Marc Garneau will speak at the United States Chamber of Commerce Aviation Summit in Washington, D.C. Innovation Minister Navdeep Bains will be in Toronto to speak about government measures aimed at making life more affordable. Small Business Minister Mary Ng will meet with female entrepreneurs in Toronto. Economic Development Minister Melanie Joly will speak at the 2020... Western Innovation Forum in Vancouver. Also in Vancouver, Veterans Affairs Minister Lawrence Macaulay will unveil the poster commemorating the 75th anniversary of the Liberation of the Netherlands and VE Day. Employment Minister Carla Qualtro will be in Surrey, British Columbia, to talk about government investment in creating job opportunities for youth. Immigration Minister Marco Mendocino will attend a citizenship ceremony in Calgary. In Montreal, Heritage Minister Stephen Gilboa Will speak about measures to reduce poverty and strengthen the economy. Agriculture Minister Marie-Claude Bibeau will make a funding announcement in Kensington, Prince Edward Island, and NDP Leader Jagmeet Singh will meet with residents in Windsor, Ontario. And that's CPAC today in politics for Thursday, March the fifth. Tune into primetime politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.